Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. As you know, we are launching into a brand new series entitled True Treasure. And kind of the goal of the True Treasure series is to walk through several parables of Jesus found throughout the Bible that focus on the unique relationship between our wealth and our relationship with God. During the True Treasure series, I, I hope that you will find many different wonderful exegetical discoveries and practical opportunities. And I also hope you'll find just some new ways to apply and live out what it means to be a generous steward, which is one of our identities as Gospel Hope Church. Um, so I'm going to open us now in a word of prayer, and then we're going to launch right into today's message as we kick off this brand new series entitled, again, True Treasure. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I am excited. My heart is teeming with joy as I get a chance one more time to serve your people and Lord God, hopefully to glorify you. Lord God, please allow me to please you in the presentation of your word uh, as I stand before, Lord God, what some would call the sacred desk, uh, Lord God, and just open up uh, the, the, the text, oh God, and allow it to speak the life that is naturally resident within it. Move me completely out of the way, oh God, and let your spirit do the work uh, as we walk through uh, this new series of messages. Lord God, take this series of messages and give it mileage beyond all of its academic preparation and let it be a true demonstration of the Spirit that those who hear it, both the unsaved, would be convicted and drawn to a place of wanting to know your Son, Jesus Christ, and those of us that do know Him would take another step forward in our sanctification and desire to be even more robust in our stewardship and in our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Luke. That's going to be kind of our launch pad, the book of Luke and chapter 12 in particular. The book of Luke chapter 12 and verse 13 is where we'll start our reading in just a moment. But before we get into our reading, I want to just kind of take us on a little trip down memory lane. Most of us are very familiar with kind of the early onset uh, during the first days of the pandemic. Back in March, I guess, when, when things really began to shut down and there was, uh, uh, again, movement or at least uh, glimmers or what do you want to call it, uh, of the pandemic prior to March. But March was really that time when most people began to grip the bat tightly and become really confronted with some of the volatility, the uncertainty, the complex ambiguity associated with the pandemic. And one of the more intriguing behaviors that was born out of those early days of the pandemic was this surge on the supermarkets to buy up things. And we know where that came from. People thought that there would be a shortage. But one shortage in particular, I think, intrigued many of us, and that was the shortage of toilet paper. Shortage of toilet paper. I mean, people just thought perhaps, I guess, enduring days uh, trapped in their homes or whatever people thought was going to go on, grocery stores couldn't keep up with the demand for toilet paper. Now, there were many other things outside of toilet paper, but that one just intrigued me in particular. Now, what happened with the toilet paper, as well as other uh, goods that we saw that, that really flew off the shelves really quickly and our grocery stores struggled to keep up with, was kind of a contemporary working live demonstration of something that the Bible talks about uh, on a regular basis, but not in terms that we use in a contemporary society. That is covetousness. We don't talk like that today. We don't say covetousness, but what is covetousness exactly? Covetousness can be summed up in this particular cultural quote that you've probably all heard of, and it is, get all you can and can all you get. To get all you can, in other words, every ounce that you can get, go ahead and get it. That's what was happening in our stores. And then can all you get means that what you have gotten, store it up, sit on it, and save it for as long as you can because you never know when you might need it. So get all you can and can all you get while it's a cute, a, a cute 
colloquialism, it is actually a tattoo or a marquee or a great bumper sticker for what Jesus would call or what the Bible would call covetousness. And so understanding what covetousness is and this, all of its expressions is going to be important to fully appreciate today's message. And you'll understand why in just a moment when I read our text one more time and then begin to take us through this parable that Jesus gives us concerning the subject of covetousness. All right, you ready? Luke chapter 12, um, beginning with verse 13, Jesus says this. Um, Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, to, to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 21 again, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Today's message title is Stocks and Barns, Stocks and Barns. You'll see that there's a, a gentleman here in the text, in the parable, whose uh, all his life and his abundance was captured in what he was able to keep in his barns. But there's one problem. He didn't diversify his portfolio because he had everything in his stocks and in his barns, but was yet not rich toward God. And so while covetousness and Jesus calls his audience, which includes us, to be cautious to guard against all forms of covetousness because covetousness comes in a variety of different uh, forms. Now, again, this is a vocabulary word that is largely used in the Bible and many, maybe we don't use the word covetousness today, but I want you to uh, fully appreciate covetousness this. It is a form of greed. It is a form of greed that purposes to express itself in three major ways. One, to receive as much as I can, to keep as much as I can, and to constantly get more. It is an insatiable appetite to want more, have more, and get more. These are the three basic expressions of covetousness. And so we're going to learn more about it as we go throughout the text, but as a kind of a, a, a working imperative, here's what I want us to think about in the terms of the relationship between greed and building treasure toward God. We must guard against greed by investing in what God values. We must guard against greed by investing in what God values. Notice right there early in the passage that Jesus says, I want you all in verse 15, take care to be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, three big ideas that we're going to be working with today, but what does it mean to actually guard against greed by investing in what God values? We need to answer the question, what are some of the things that God values? I believe that the Bible speaks volumes on the things that God values and what it means for us to build up treasure toward him. The first one is found in verses 13 through 15. I believe that the Bible would have us to know that God, first and foremost, values 
people over possessions. God values people over possessions. One of the first reasons that I would note that God values people over possessions is because when the Lord said to this man at the end of the parable, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, then whose things will, who, who's going to own all that stuff? Your soul, you, the individual person is what's going to be required of you. But there's an even more robust story in the Bible that tells us just how much God values people over possessions. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 25, and it's known to many of us as the story of the rich young ruler. It says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit? That's, that's uh, treasure in financial language. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And on and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad and was because he was extremely rich. Listen to this. He became very sad because he was very or extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We know it from this text or from this story that God values people over possessions for several reasons. I want you to pay careful attention to Jesus's words. Notice that Jesus did not ask the rich young ruler for his purse. He asked for his person. What do I mean? If you reread that story, Jesus didn't ask the rich young ruler to, to give him any money. He said, sell all your possessions, give it to people, right? Take your purse and liquidate it for the purpose of people. Give it to the poor. And then he said, he didn't just want the rich young ruler to give his gain for the sake of the poor. He asked the rich young ruler to come and follow him. Jesus didn't ask for his purse. He asked for the person. God values people over possessions. But there is yet another observation that I want you to make from this story about the rich young ruler. And it is this. Jesus didn't preach the 10th commandment, but he did personalize it. What do I mean? Did you notice how in that story, Jesus mentioned several of the principles from the Ten Commandments or the law to the rich young ruler and said that if you want to inherit eternal life, you need to keep these principles. He listed commandments uh, six, seven, eight, and nine, but he did not mention commandment number 10. Do you know what commandment number 10 is? It might shock you. And here it is. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You see that dude, you shall not covet was the 10th commandment. Notice that when he was walking the rich young ruler through the things that he needed to do in order to inherit eternal life, he talked about several of the other commandments that the rich young ruler knew he had already done, but then the Lord unpacked for him personally what it meant for him to practice 
um, not being covetousness or, or not being covetous. You notice that? You notice he unpacked the tent. So he didn't preach it. He just unpacked it in his own personal life. So if you really want to live this way or you really want to live in a way that you can inherit eternal life, you need to have eternal treasure. And the way you do that is to make sure that you haven't traded treasures down here on earth. He preached the ten. He didn't preach the Ten Commandments. He personalized it. He showed the rich young ruler where he was actually a practitioner of covetousness. He was more willing to hold on to all that he had than to go after Jesus with all that he had. Did you see that in the passage? Well, there is a third observation that I want you to make, and it is one that shakes many people when they see this passage. I want you to note how Jesus noticed that there was a deep emotional decline in the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler became very sad when Jesus asked him to sell all he had and give it to the poor and come and follow him. He was very sad. And Jesus says, when I noticed that he was very sad, he, he, he noted that he was also extremely rich. It seemed like his joy and his sorrow was directly connected to his resources. But Jesus says something else that leaves many people kind of stuck theologically thinking that God hates the wealthy. And I want to read this one more time right there in the story of the rich young ruler with verse uh, 25. Jesus says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many people look at this passage and believe that the Lord is taking particular issue with the rich. And that's not the case. As a matter of fact, I want you to know this, that while Jesus didn't ask for the man's purse, he asked for his person. Come and follow me. Jesus didn't preach the Ten Commandments. He he uh, he made it personal and brought it to him right in his home. Jesus didn't make heaven hard for rich people. He made heaven hard for people's riches. I want you to hear this. Jesus didn't make heaven hard for rich people. He made heaven hard for people's riches. In other words, notice that Jesus uses the analogy of a camel. Close your eyes for just a moment and imagine the image of a camel. What do you see? I know when I close my eyes and think about a camel, I can't think about nothing but them humps. Well, what is the role of a hump in a camel? That's where he stores liquid or water for the, for the journey. I believe at least one of the truths that Jesus is conveying, because he had at his disposal many animals that he could have brought into that analogy that would not fit through the eye of a needle. I believe what he was really driving home with the rich is this. There is no amount of storage that you can have on this earth that is going to help you in the journey in that other place. You can't bring any cargo from this life into that life. And so God didn't make heaven hard for the rich. He just made heaven hard for people's riches because those things will not pass through the portal. You need to transfer those funds or you need to convert those riches that you have on earth to something that actually registers in heaven. And the Bible tells us exactly how to do that in later text. I want you to understand that, that again, God is not against possessions, but he has a higher value and premium that he places on people than he does on possessions. We need to understand that our value is not found in the balance of our accounts, but it is found in the son's completed work at Calvary. There is a great investment and exchange that took place at the cross. Number one, God invested his own self. He thought it was unsatisfactory that the blood of goats and calves and bulls and rams should be used to purchase humanity. He made his own personal investment by sending his only son. And then there was a great exchange at the cross. It should have been us. He was not just doing it for us. He was doing it in our place. And so there was a great exchange and a great investment 
but that takes place at the cross. And it screams with how much God values those that he came to save and to pardon. And so again, your value is not found in anything that you accomplish or anything that you accumulate throughout this life. Your value is found in the completed work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, where God is the one making the investment and God is the one making the great exchange. I want you to continue to look back at the story of the wise or the, excuse me, the rich fool looking for more closely now at verse 16. Jesus continues to say uh, as he unpacks the parable and he told them the parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and I will store my goods. And I will say to my soul, this is self-talk, right? Internal dialogue. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. But we know what God said by interrupting that process. Let me tell you something we else learned from this particular parable. Not only does God value people over possessions, but God values barns until they become bunkers. You know the difference between a barn and a bunker, right? So a barn is, yes, a place where people store goods for future use. But a bunker is a place where people hang out and shelter themselves for impending weathering storms. A, a bunker against God, a bunker against the future. So God values barns until they become our bunkers, a place where we try to hunker down and shelter and weather storms that only he can resolve. What do I mean by this? How do we know that God, God values barns? Take a look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We see another barn coming into the biblical story. The Bible says here, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So we know that if God has a promise that he will fill the barns of those who honor him with their substance and the first fruits of all their gain, we know that God is not against possessions. He's just against possessions, possession is people. We know that God is not against bunkers. Oh, he's not against barns until we convert our barns into bunkers that seemingly shield us from our need for him. So God values barns. He doesn't have an issue with people who have much in this life. I want you to consider carefully that, that the Lord actually, based on what we see in Proverbs, the Lord wants to fill our barns as an expression of his favor on our life, but not as an exception to faith. God wants to fill your barns. God wants to, to give us things to enjoy, but not that they would serve as an exception to placing faith in him. God, the Lord, he, he, he wants to fill our barns as a motivation to enjoy life, but not to insulate ourselves from others in this life. We know what happens when a person becomes incredibly, incredibly wealthy. They build gates around their property. You might have a gate around your property. Don't get mad. They move into a gated neighborhood. They move into a more exclusive part of town. They begin to live in such a way that they lose touch with the regular folks of humanity. Why? Because it seems as if there's something about full barns that makes us not just want to enjoy life, but to insulate ourselves from others in this life. And this is when a barn is becoming a bunker. The Bible also lets us know in the same passage, if we make some careful observations, that the Lord wants to fill our barns indeed, but he wants to fill our barns so that we can make a heavenly investment, but not for, it, for those barns to become a part of our enslavement. 
It is very possible that when we have much that we become slaves to it. And that was never God's plan. God worked mightily through the lives of many rich people. Solomon, David, all the kings of Israel had much at their disposal. Solomon being one of the richest people ever, but he gave the wealth and the riches to be subservient to the great wisdom and the service that the king was going to carry out. So God is not against barns. He just don't want them to become bunkers. He doesn't want them to become the sources of enslavement and insulation in our lives or exceptions to our faith. I think it's important for us to note where the Bible actually says that the Lord has given us all things to, to, to enjoy. Because if we don't have a careful perspective on earthly wealth, we may adopt what we consider to be a very noble and pious poverty mentality. That is that only poor people or only uh, people who don't have much have real riches with God. And that's not the case. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 17 through 19. These are direct commandments that, that, that are given to those who are rich in this life and who are also believers. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And they are to do good, to be uh, rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the Lord doesn't have an issue with wealth. He just has an issue with wealth interrupting the way we worship and trust and see him. Now, there are several statements that I want to really unpack for you here. And so, so because we've been saying that if I want to uh, uh, safeguard my heart against greed, then I need to invest in the things that God value. How exactly do I make these investments? Here is a passage that I believe gives us some clear path for how to make these investments. Verse 17a tells us there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, to be intentionally humble. It says, for the rich in this age, do not be haughty. Do not be haughty. So the positive is, if you're not to be haughty, you ought to be humble. Now, it is really easy when you have much to become a haughty person, right? Uh, many of us looking back, many of you looking back at me through your computers or television screens, you are rich even if you don't consider yourself to be so because you're very rich in comparison to others who live in this country. You're very rich in comparison to others who live in this world. But I want you to understand, so, so I don't want you to intellectually and emotionally switch off the accountability when we're talking about the rich as if this doesn't apply to you because when you look at your W-2, you're not satisfied with how much you make or you're saying, well, I'm not in the Jeff Bezos league. I'm not in the uh, billionaire league. I'm not a millionaire. I don't even make six figures a year, so he ain't talking to me. I can pull the covers back over my head uh, on this message. No, no. You, you are rich in many ways that you don't know comparatively to others. But I want you to hear clearly what the Lord is saying to those who have any measure of means. And yes, we are particularly talking to the rich. He tells us to be intentionally humble. I believe we need to be intentionally humble. We need to be intentional with our hope and we need to be intentional with our commitment to help others. These are three action items outlined there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 17 and following, right? He says, charge those not to be haughty. Why is haughtiness such a temptation when you have a a many resources? I'll tell you why. There are certain things that happen in our lives that some people have to pray their way out that other folks just have to pay their way out. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There's people looking back at me right now that if you needed another car, another roof, 
or had to go in and, and, and satisfy some kind of catastrophic uh, uh, need or address a catastrophic outcome in your life, you would have to pray your way out of that situation. But at the same time, there are people that you share the pews with and share the gospel hope address with that wouldn't have to pray about those same events at all. They won't have to pray their way out. They could just pay their way out. And I'll be honest with you that when you can pay your way out of things that most people have to pray their way out of, it has a propensity to create haughtiness. You may never think of yourself as being haughty. You may just think of yourself as being as handling business. I come to you with a, with a high degree of transparency and vulnerability. I remember very particularly a person uh, in my life that needed me to really help them in a hands-on way. And I had two options. I could either pray through it or I could just pay my way out of it. And I just decided to just write a check. And the, the longer that I wanted to keep that person out of my life and not bring their issues on my front porch and, and impacting my family, I could just write a bigger check the longer I wanted them to stay away. But writing a check or paying my way out didn't help that person. They needed to be prayed out, prayed through, supported, and hand on. And, but, but, but when you have other resources at your disposal, it's easy to become haughty and not to be humble toward others and to be haughty in yourself because you know you have a certain level of resource and insulation in this life from certain, you know, uncertainties. And so we are called to be intentionally humble intentionally humble. Don't be like the, the, the rich fool in the previous passage that we read who said to himself, soul, you have many goods later for yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry. That, that, while God did design our wealth to be enjoyed, he did not uh, intend for it to become a reason that we, again, insulate and isolate ourselves from him or from others or become haughty. We should be intentionally humble. If you have much, or even if you don't have much, but if you have much, I'm hearing you, I'm begging you. One of the ways that you can make a heavenly investment is to be intentionally humble. There are times and opportunities where you don't have to be where you might choose to be. Be intentionally humble. If I could give you maybe a practical way, in our household, Carrie and I um, have uh, uh, some standards economically. One of them is there's a certain dollar amount that as long as our spending is below that, we don't need to have a conversation about it. But if we have a financial decision that is above a certain amount, we need to come together and talk about it. Perhaps for you that have much, maybe you could develop a, some kind of economic threshold like that. Say, hey, you know what? These are things that I could just normally write checks for and spend and do, but Lord, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some brakes on myself. I don't have to confer with anybody, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna intentionally say to myself, Lord, before I spend this kind of amount, before I make this level of investment in anything in life, even if I have it at my disposal, I want to pause, I want to park, and I want to spend some time in prayer with you. That may be a great way for you to humble yourself and not become haughty. There's some other things that the Lord said in this, in uh, uh, 2 Timothy through Paul. He says here, not only to be intentionally humble as not haughty, but also to be intentional with my hope. Notice that he says, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, comma, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches. We have to be intentionally redoubling down, double clicking uh, uh, our hope, making sure that in all the things that we can do in this life that may uh, uh, be completely unknown and unfelt and unexperienceable by others, that our hope uh, doesn't begin to rest in those things. Let me say more about this. Listen. Life is volatile, it is uncertain, it has many complex and ambiguous features to it. And as you're building up financial 
resources, if you look at the way we build financial resources, it's all with a view toward helping us weather economic storms or weather all kinds of uh, eventual storms, whether that be, you know, three to six months cost of living, whether that be building for retirement, whether that be investing in the markets, whether that be diversification of our portfolios. All of these strategies you think about and these buzzwords for economic accumulation are all about weathering storms. Why? Because we hope that we won't lose it all. And I'm saying that as our resources increase, we need to be very careful that, as, that, that our hope doesn't rest exclusively in our resources, but that our hope is exclusively in God. And we view those resources as just a reflection of God's faithfulness in our lives. Be intentionally humble. Be intentional about my hope. But there's something else that is told to us in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and to be ready to share. We should be intentional in my commitment to help others. Man, if you are a person that has much, or maybe you're a person who doesn't have much, if you got resources, one of the, 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 the buttons that the Lord wants to push in our character is that we're always on the lookout for others that we can help or serve. And again, the way we help or serve may not just be in cash. It may be in some other uh, kind gestures that are uniquely possible because of some abundance that the Lord has created in our lives. But the Lord wants us to be intentionally humble, intentionally with my hope, and intentional in my commitment to help others. And these are ways that we can invest in a foundation for a future in something that really represents the true life, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 17 through 19. Here it is. I just want to close this idea with this, uh, that no matter the size of your barn, it is either an asset to the kingdom or it is a liability to your soul. No matter the size of your barns, because everybody's got a barn, and I want to make sure you don't walk away from this point believing that serving, sharing, and giving, and humility are only the adventures of the wealthy. Listen to me carefully. Everybody has a barn, and either the size of that barn is either an asset to the kingdom because of the way you're using your resources, or it is a liability to your soul because you're using it to shelter you from your need and dependency upon God. And we don't want to fall in that latter category. Let's take a look at our last and final verse in this sequence. And it's when the Lord says to the man who has accumulated much for himself in verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, but the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God values people over possessions. God values barns as long as they don't become bonkers. And God values trust because it shows what we really treasure. God values trust when he sees it, when he sees a, 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 us trusting him. God values trust because it really reveals what we treasure. I want you to understand that first and foremost, if you want to know what you treasure, here's three basic questions you can ask from today's text. If you want to know what you treasure, um, ask yourself, is he, that is God, your protection? Or like the rich fool, are the size of your barns and the things that you've accumulated, has that become your protection against the, the volatility of this life and the uncertainty of this life? A second thing that you can ask is, is he your portion? Is he your portion? You might be kind of puzzled by this language. What did you mean, is he your portion? Well, let's take a look at Psalm chapter 73 or Psalm 73 verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. In other words, of all the things that I can have, Lord, whether it be the biggest slice of the American pie, whether it be a, a great uh, resources, a, a well put together retirement, Lord, I want you to be my portion. And let me tell you something. If that's not your, if that's not your praise, it make it your prayer. If you can't really say that the Lord is your portion, he is your, he is your reward and he is your shield. He is the one thing that you desire most in this life above all that you have access to and all that you currently have, you, that you need to pray that because that really is what we ought to live with our trust in the Lord because the Lord values trust because it shows what we treasure. Is he, ask this question, is he your protection? Is he your portion? And then here is something else you need to ask based on the previous passage that we read right there from uh, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here's a question you have, a litmus test for your trust and where it is. Is he Lord of your produce? Is he Lord of all that you produce? Is he Lord of all that you have at your disposal? Is he Lord of it? Notice how whoever this is, well, all of us are being spoken to here in Proverbs chapter three, verse nine, that the Lord says, honor the Lord with your wealth holistically and with the first fruits of your produce. So, so in other words, if it's with the first, fru first fruits of your produce, that means that there is a proportionality. In other words, as my life increases, uh, as my physical resources increase, then my, 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 my capacity before God increases. I want to honor him with the first fruits of that. So no matter how much I have, I have a first fruits. And so it calls us to honor the Lord both with our first and to, to make sure that proportionately, as, again, as my territory, territory increases, the way that I am, that I am serving God should also increase. Uh, if there's one thing that I want to bring to mind here as I think about this idea that God treasures trust because it shows what we treasure, or God values trust because it shows what we treasure. Think about these words. The world would say to us, put your money where your mouth is. That's their way of provoking action, right? Put your money where your mouth is. But I believe that the word of God would say this, your finances reflect where your faith already is. How you manage your finances is a reflection of where your faith is. Think about that. How you manage your finances is indeed a reflection of where your faith is. Are you using your earthly treasure as a means to fabricate salvation? In other words, to produce a halo of protection, a force field against life's uncertainty and ambiguities. Are you using your current resources as a form or as a fabricated salvation, or are you using your financial resources or all that you have as a way to facilitate service to the kingdom? This is a great way to do a faith check to find out where we are, and where we placed our faith. Now, many of you may be saying to yourself, well, hey, man, these are some great ideas. I love that. I want to get involved in more humanitarian stuff. I want to donate big and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but why do I need Jesus in this regard? Well, the reason that we need Christ is because this kind of conformity of faith, this kind of conversion of perspective doesn't come just by looking at the balance sheet, crunching numbers and saying, here's some uh, portion that I'm going to give to uh, 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 nonprofit organizations. What God is after, remember, is not the purse. He's after the person. You could, you could empty your accounts, uh, you, uh, if you're an unbeliever, you could literally empty your accounts uh, and, and give millions to a local church and it wouldn't register in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because our labor and our resources must be validated by a relationship. What do I mean? 
Consider, if you will, if a person went up to an office building and just said, I'm going to go in here and work really hard and donate my time. And they sat down at a desk and, and just started working at a particular company with no job there. Uh, they would immediately probably be ran or rushed out of the building. But why? Because they don't have a relationship. I want you to hear me clearly. The Lord isn't looking for our wealth. He is looking for our worship. The Lord isn't looking for our purse. He wants our person. And where that happens is in the way that we place faith in Christ. You see, the gospel is an invite to see the historic lasting faithfulness of God. The, 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 the gospel is this window that God gives to, to look to see how greatly he values humanity and the great investment he has made to redeem us. And it is an invite for us to invest in him fully, to put our full faith and confidence in his work. Why? Because he is the only one that has a full and complete view of the future that is equally as clear as the past. Why is that important? Most expert investors, the reason that they are and they move with great confidence in today's economy is because they have taken a macro view, a macro view of the past. And they are able to look at all the things that have occurred and say, you know what? All things typically work out in these cycles. They, they look at the past performance and they find confidence. Well, the gospel is an invite for us to look at God's past performance on the cross, how much he loved us, sent his son to die in our place. Looking at God's past performance of faithfulness throughout the scriptures, looking at his past performance, and that should help our hearts to project that, wow, God is consistent and faithful when everything else in life is volatile. And he is the only one who sees the future as clearly as he also sees the past. This is the invite in the gospel is to place your faith in one who has equal hold on the future as he does on the past. God wants us to have a relationship with him. He isn't interested in the purse. He is interested in the person. But how we manage the purse definitely is a statement of what's happening with the person. God wants us to place faith in him. God wants us to trust him undeniably, undyingly. God wants us to trust him, but his call to trust him is not unwarranted. He has loved us proactively before we ever even knew who he was. We weren't running toward him. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God made an investment with no, with, 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 without you bringing anything to the table. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. I hope you were encouraged by today's message, and I hope that as a result, you will diversify your portfolio and not just invest in stocks and barns, but you'll also place full faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy and your work. We look forward to, Lord God, engaging with you and hearing more about you, Lord God, through this uh, series entitled True Treasure. Help our hearts to be transformed in the way we view wealth and, and its relationship with our worship of you. Help us, Lord God, search us. And if there's any one of us, oh God, that is challenged uh, in the way uh, that we are managing, Lord God, the purse, but we're not willing to give you everything and therefore you don't have our person, Lord God, convict us, show us that. Lord God, help us to, 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 to move toward you, Lord God, at all costs and let nothing stand in the way uh, of full faith and confidence in your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.